Thanks, Charity, and thanks, Matt, for your prayer. Thank you for the invitation to uh, speak to you all again at the beginning of a new year, and uh, what a year we've come through, and that's been said probably so much that it's actually boring to say it, but there we are on the edge of a new year. Um, in some ways, this passage that you just heard read um, speaks for itself. I mean, you could sit at home and meditate on that passage for an awfully long time, and, uh, and find that um, it tells you an awful lot of things that you need to know and spending some time with it would not be a bad idea. But I want to, uh, to riff on some of the themes from this passage in particular one, um, and we'll get to that in a minute. But I wonder if any of the current students who are on this call know the, um, the college motto here at ADC. Any of current students, I'm not asking staff or anybody because some of you might not know, but you know, I'm hoping somebody will. Who, anybody know, any current students know what the college motto is? Anyone? I don't see, if you know it, just unmute yourself and say it because I can't necessarily, see, I, I can see everybody on one screen, I think, but um, I'm not seeing anything. Really? Okay, so somebody else then, anybody who's not a current student and not Harry, because he'll certainly know, and probably not Steve. Um, come on, somebody else. What, what is the college motto? Anyone? Just unmute yourself and give it to us. Okay, I'm gonna allow it to be Steve or Harry. <laughs> and if you guys don't know, we're sunk. <laughs> College motto? Oh, come on. Anybody? Anybody? No, the equipping Christians to serve is sort of our marketing catchphrase. But if you look in the college logo, does that help you any? Do you know the college logo? What are the words? Evelyn, be. thank you. It should be Jesus is Lord. <laughs> Jesus is Lord. Thank you, Edward. Um, you. It's in Greek. Jesus Christos Curios in the logo, which is not always easy to see because it's really small. But that, of course, means Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord is the motto, if you can believe it, of Acadia Divinity College. And that is, um, in some ways, shouldn't be surprising because Jesus is Lord is the oldest confession of the Christian faith, the clearest confession of the Christian faith, the most powerful, disruptive, subversive confession of Christian or of any faith. And these are three words that have turned the world upside down. Three words that have turned and may yet turn your world upside down. Jesus Christ is Lord. Rolls off the lips so easily. And look how quickly you respond when I say, who is Lord? Yeah, I can see your mouthing it. Jesus is Lord. Exactly. Jesus is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Christians have been saying these words for 2,000 years. But have they always meant the words that they spoke? Have they always owned their confession? Have we owned our confession? When this issue has been tackled sometimes in Western Christianity, it becomes a sort of gnosis, you know, a mystical inside knowledge that many people encounter Jesus as savior, but not as Lord. It's posited almost as a second stage in a faith journey. First, accept Jesus as your personal savior. Then sometime later, you might consider putting him on the throne of your life. Making Jesus Lord of your life is akin to the plea, oh Jesus, take the wheel. We've individualized this idea. 
We've individualized it to the point where we say, well, is Jesus is your savior, but is he Lord of your life? And I think that when we reduce the statement, Jesus is Lord to this, it's become so anemic. It's such an insipid interpretation and application of what it means when we say Jesus Christ is Lord. And so far away from that disruptive, subversive power I referred to a moment ago. In this scenario, Jesus is Lord only over that which we have decided to surrender to him. His kingly realm is limited to the scope of our release. Imagine that. His kingly realm is limited to the scope of our release. He cannot then be king of the church, only what we have given to him. He can't be king of the world, for the world isn't Christian. When we say then, Jesus is Lord, what on earth does it really mean? How can we even begin to get a glimpse of its relevance, not only for our own lives, but for a church and for a world in chaos? Now, you might be thinking already of Philippians 2, or maybe you're thinking instead of what you're going to have for lunch. But if you have been listening at all, you may be thinking of Philippians 2, because, of course, that's the classic text for exploring this idea, that great kenotic passage that poetically tells the story of God emptying himself taking a a humble position, emptying himself to death, even death on a cross, and then being raised up to new life, and then lifted up to the heavens visibly so that every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. Well, what more can there be to say? Ephesians breaks open this interpretation a bit, mirrors it in some ways, And unpacking the universality of the lordship of Christ into the unity of believers and all of creation. So at the very beginning, Paul, as a prisoner in the Lord, calls the believers to action. His begging or urging is an exhortation to behavior and ethics. I beg you, he says, I beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Think for a minute about the calling to which you have been called. I beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In the first instance, that calling is pretty clear. It's the call to follow Christ. Those who have been called to follow Christ and now claim him as Lord have an accompanying character that should reflect this commitment. And the passage may take on a whole layer of meaning for those of us who are called to specific ministries of leadership within the church. I beg you, says Paul, lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so in the first instance, confessing Jesus as Lord transforms our character. On the level of individual faith alone, that's a toughie. Live a life worthy of the calling? Okay, so I'll start a ministry named after me and become a Christian celebrity. Or maybe I'll be an influencer uh, uh, and people will seek out my counsel and my uh, very handsome and beautiful pictures. And maybe I'll lead a seminary or maybe lead worship on a large stage. Maybe I'll lead a quiet country church or teach kids about their identity. What does it look like to live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called? Sadly, for too many people, it has meant checking their character at the door, along with their integrity. 
In some ways, maybe that's not quite fair. They entered into their calling passionately enough, but as time went on and they became elevated or powerful or bored, they thought they could get away with avoiding the lordship claim over their own life in the first instance. Jesus would be Lord of parts, but not the whole. My own experience of Christian leadership has been full of encounters with capable and called leaders, forgetting that Jesus is Lord, forgetting that he's Lord and thinking instead that they are. And maybe they would never say such a thing, but they've acted like it. Lord, save us, save me from that sort of activity. In the hidden corners and unseen places is where our character is built, and such things are not hidden from God or from our own formation. When Jesus is Lord, it impacts our character. It knits together our integrity. When Jesus is Lord, guess what? I'm not. And neither are you, (laughs) no matter whether you lead an international ministry with your name on it or serve a small rural church. The confession Jesus is Lord, first of all, reminds us that none of us is Lord. And so we live the calling, as Paul says, with humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love. This is what our ministry looks like when Jesus is Lord, less of us and more of him. Today, at the beginning of a new year, I invite you to name the thing or things that might have a hold on your life that you find difficult to surrender to the Lordship of Christ, that seek to displace him from the role of authority that he ought to have in your life. In a new year, you have this opportunity to confront and face the principalities and powers at work in your life and confess afresh the Lordship of Christ as the only one who is worthy to sit on the throne. What do you need to do? today to lean into a life worthy of your calling. We start in many ways in our Christian walk by confessing that Jesus is Lord. You know, I've often reflected on our practice of baptism and how in so many places, candidates in the waters of baptism are asked to make all sorts of promises. I promise I'll follow Jesus all the days of my life. I I promise. I will do these things when really the only thing we need to do is make that that very brief but very life-changing confession to ask one another in the water of baptism, who is Lord? Who is Lord? Jesus is Lord of my life and of all. Confessing that will radically transform our lives beyond anything that we might have expected I was reminded by some teaching I heard on the weekend that God doesn't change in order to calibrate himself to our lives. Rather, we calibrate our lives to him, his character, and his standard. And as Richard Baucom reminds us, God is self-defining, so we only know who we are in light of his self-revelation. So while we own it individually, and it is my personal confession, the confession Jesus is Lord is all about a single allegiance and a single affirmation that is owned not only by me, but by all believers. And so confessing Jesus is Lord not only builds our character, but it forges unity in the church. And so we are further encouraged to make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, as Paul puts it. 
Our rich media world is the most divided world ever. It's become blood sport between Christians who defame, defrock, and defriend one another over issues that seem to have nothing to do with the Lordship of Christ. In fact, the conflict and warring that takes place seems to betray that confession altogether. It's become so bad that the disgusting behavior at birth has spilled into real life. People are confronting one another, not only online now, but face to face in horrible ways. We are given over, even as Christians, to a mimetic violence, as René Girard describes it, mimetic violence, that is copying the violence of the world rather than the other way around. Live the life to fulfill your calling. Yet Girard indicates that Jesus subverted this meme of violence by surrendering to it and was vindicated in resurrection. Jesus is Lord of your life and mine, but also of the church in a way that redefines how we're allowed to act towards one another. Of all people, Christians are the ones called to live at peace with everyone in as much as it lies with us. Make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. But you know, sitting under the lordship of Christ isn't just about glossing over the differences as believers or groups of believers. That isn't really fellowship in the spirit. That isn't unity. Unity is hanging together while we acknowledge our differences, name them, seek to manifest Christ's lordship in reality, recognizing that it might take some work. Confessing the lordship of Christ gives us that humility to consider that we may not always be right. And maybe some others need our patience, just like we need theirs. How patient, after all, has the Lord been with us? Unity then means we have to be honest about our differences and not be so quick to fight about them, but to reason about them together. And where we see warring and conflict, despite lips that utter the words, Jesus is Lord, the Lordship of Christ is not being acknowledged or manifested. God cannot be divided there's not your God and my God. He can't be divided in that way. Jesus is Lord. This means that our individual character is remade, our political and cultural allegiance is redefined, and the principalities and powers are subject to him. And so confessing Jesus, if you're counting, this is number three. Confessing Jesus as Lord confronts the principalities and powers you see, when we say Jesus is Lord, we are making a powerful political statement. We're saying that Jesus is Lord, and not only we're not Lord, but somebody else is not either. When we sit in church on Sunday or even online, we're saying that over COVID and chaos and through the grossness and grief in his people, Jesus is Lord. Christians don't have a president or a prime minister, or an emperor or queen, no matter how much we love her. We don't have a president because we have a king. This is no secret divine conspiracy. You know, uh, they did some research that I saw recently published um, that Christians are, particularly in Canada, but elsewhere too, but including Canada, are vulnerable to conspiracy theories. Apparently we're vulnerable to conspiracy theories in part because we're used to believing stuff that we're not sure is true in the, in, in the standard sense of how we measure what is true. 
And so if something makes sense to us and coheres with what we believe already, we're inclined to believe it, whether there's evidence for it or not. And I think sometimes Christians are vulnerable to conspiracy theories because we've been following a gospel that we think we believe without evidence or historical context or philosophical warrant. But when you learn and educate your faith that we can hold Christian belief with validity and confidence, we are less susceptible to these odd, beyond belief, cult-like faiths. The Lordship of Christ is not a secret confession. It names the ultimate authority and puts all others in their place, including any thought that God is on our side against them. So confessing Jesus as Lord will sometimes put us at odds with the state. But let's be sensible about this. A number of churches across Canada have made the news for refusing to close their doors in response to public health protocols. Appealing to the separation of church and state, they argue the state cannot control what they do. Now, let's be clear, the whole teaching of the separation of church and state emerges from a confession of the Lordship of Christ. It's not a freestanding affirmation. Appealing to that separation of church and state, these churches argue that the state can't control what they do. Let's be clear. Closing your church building to protect your community during a pandemic in no way compromises the claim that Jesus is Lord. Now, Chinese Christians being required to install face recognition cameras and setting up pictures of their president in place of Christian images may be a direct challenge to the claim that Jesus is Lord. But respecting the well-being of others in a pandemic, I pose to you, is not. When Baptist founders Smith and Helwes first elaborated what it meant for Baptists to confess the Lordship of Christ, they made clear that the laws of protection and rule and so on were the realm of the magistrate, whereas issues of freedom of religion, that is to worship as you see fit or not, to be com compelled to worship uh, uh, one God or another is a matter of conscience under the Lordship of Christ, and not about the state. So the separation of church and state is not its own absolute claim. It only makes sense in the context of the confession of the Lordship of Christ. Jesus is Lord of this church and the state is not. Having said that, when church buildings are legislated to close in this pandemic, they're not being compelled to worship a false God and their freedom of belief is not being compromised. Separation of church and state is about affirming the lordship of Christ and resisting forced belief. It's not about flagrant violation of safety laws. If you believe that everyone bears the image of God, you will seek their welfare and not their injury. But cooperating on this matter shows humility, gentleness, patience, and peace. It shows that we recognize Jesus isn't just our Lord, who is overall but the one who is through all and in all. Why do you want to risk harm to those who bear his image? So you can't use the claim, Jesus is Lord, as an excuse to pursue your own agenda. Jesus is Lord can't simply be a metaphor for, Jesus is the champion of my best ideas. This is the risk I think of Soren Kierkegaard, who poses the hero of faith, who has what he calls a teleological suspension of the ethical. In other words, the hero of faith is justified in doing something that seems unethical in light of a good outcome. But unfortunately, this could be used to justify almost any behavior. For Kierkegaard, Abraham is the hero of faith who is ready to commit an unethical act, that is to kill his son Isaac, out of obedience to God. 
His action was uneth- was ethical, Kierkegaard says, even before the ram was provided because he was ready to kill his own son in light of God's purposes. You can see how this approach could legitimate almost any action in the wrong hands. Moreover, the oneness of Christ's lordship and the spirit means we are one even though separated. So just as the church global is one, I believe even when scattered, so are we one in Christ by one spirit who has made us one in him. On this call right now in this chapel, we are one in the spirit. There is after all one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling. And so we come to the crux of the matter. This one community gathered or scattered that is one in the spirit, bears witness to Christ's lordship beyond the state or the politician or the sage on the stage, the influencer, the social media guru. We cannot just say Jesus is Lord and then assume that he blesses our political bias, whatever it is. We may certainly choose our politics according to our beliefs, but if Jesus is overall, through all, and in all, then we must be careful before we demonize others too quickly before we have looked in the mirror ourselves. Jesus is Lord, not because any political leader says he is, or because any leader cuts off funding to Christian organizations, or because any political leader tells us exactly what we want to hear. It's too easy for the state to take hold of the church these days and make it its slave. This is what happens when we think that any earthly leader is a special representative of him who alone is Lord. But is he really in all? Really? When we look at the world, that's a hard affirmation. Lord, are you really there in that situation with those people as Lord? Because we cannot say where God is not. Perhaps it's best to assume that he is. And in this, we'll approach the world with humility, gentleness, and seeking peace. Seeking peace with everyone may sometimes lead us through a road of conflict. Speaking up for human rights in some places may set us at odds with colleagues, but that disagreement is necessary for resolution and reconciliation. So yes, he is often in those we wish that he would hate like we do. By the same token, not everyone who utters the words, Jesus is Lord, ultimately belongs to him. Remember in Matthew 7, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons and do many deeds in the power of your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. Not all who confess Jesus as Lord believe it in their hearts. But it doesn't change the reality that he is indeed Lord. So while we may not belong together with them, their belief does not undermine or take anything away from that ultimate reality that Jesus is indeed Lord. He's not some passive, unfazed king not a Lord who kind of visits his serfs occasionally to collect the feudal rent, playing the games that his people uh, bring him into, but he is a power and a presence who is able to accomplish the unity we can only dream about in a world as divided as this one. And yet, and yet, he calls us to manifest it. He calls us to manifest it because of our confession. God doesn't just go around plucking us from the world like a collection of dandelions. He's sending us out. The dandelion clock gets blown into the world and the seeds 
ride on the air until they take root in a place where he has chosen to put them. We are here intentionally as his ambassadors of reconciliation. The Lord of hosts sends us as his ambassadors of hope. We are not in a good place in the world. We're not moving in a good direction. In the midst of this, are we ready to live a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called? If we're going to, we need some careful learning around what it means to live into the Lordship of Christ. And so this is what I pray for you and for all of us in 2021. That our time together in this place, in this seminary at ADC, would be a place of learning what this confession really means for us. What does it mean to say Jesus is Lord? What does it mean for us as individuals? What does it mean for our churches? What does it mean for the world? I pray that this term at ADC, we will be a seedbed of truth-seeking, of peacemaking, of remaking our lives, our minds, our churches, and our communities under the Lordship of Christ for his glory and his alone. And so I ask you, who is Lord? Jesus is Lord. Amen.